Let's pray together, shall we? Father, what a joy to know that we can come just as we are into your presence and that your grace is sufficient to cover all of our flaws and our sinfulness. Thank you for the newness of life that we have in Christ at Calvary and the great gulf that you did span. What a wonderful reality to know Jesus Christ as our perfect lamb. Father, as we reach for our Bibles now and we study together to begin our new week, we want it to be an act of worship even as we sit in silence. We want to hear the voice of your spirit through the pages of scripture. We are grateful for the orderly account that we have of the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would use your word now today to strengthen us and grow us in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Let me say that it's always a joy to have a good friend, Sean Patrick, with us. And Sean, I tried to release Sean. I told him he could go out in the foyer. He could do whatever he wants to do. He's insisting that he sit here. And uh, that's okay, Sean. Um, but what a joy to have you with us. And you have thanked us. But I want to thank you, Sean, because it's so valuable for us, isn't it, as a ministry to have trusted leadership over the ministries like the, the ministry of Finish Line Ministry in, in Africa. And we, we know that it's a ministry of integrity. We know that uh, unlike so many ministries, 100 cents on the dollar when you give to FLM makes it to the field. That's tremendous. And that's part of the leadership that Sean brings to Finish Line Ministry. We're so grateful for all of that. If you were here last week, you know that I began the sermon time with an, in part of the introduction. I talked about a number of reasons that people have left our church. And so I found it um, a bit comical and a little bit, and more than a little bit encouraging when at the early service this morning, someone on the way in handed me a a paper and there they had written 15 reasons why they're staying at Fellowship Bible Church. (laughs) You'll recall last week that one of the reasons that someone left, they had left me a paper with nine reasons they were leaving. Um, And here's 15 reasons I thought it was good to share. It encouraged me. I think it'll encourage you. Number one reason that we stay at FBC, fearless verse by verse preaching. Number two, Jesus doesn't care if you wear shorts to FBC. (laughs) Number three, opportunities to serve. Number four, FBC feels just like family. Number five, it's close to Chick-fil-A. Number six, um, men are men at FBC. All right, and Deacon Brian proved that this morning. Man, just, it's a crusher. Um, Number seven, no debt, no debt. Number eight, no pressure to be a member. And I've made a note to address that. Um, Number nine, Camp out and outdoor ministries. And I love our outdoors as well, our outdoor ministries. Number 10, the Bible is encouraged to be hidden in our hearts. Number 11, speaking of things that are concealed. I think that I take that to mean that we sometimes get into some of the deeper things of the Lord. We try to anyway and not avoid things. Number 12, this is my favorite on the list. Long sermons, parentheses, seriously, they said. All right, that's good. Um, May their tribe increase. Number 13, (laughs) teens who follow hard after God. And that is true. Great group of young people here right now. Number 14, they stay because they enjoy crushing the pastor in basketball. (laughs) That hurts my feelings a little bit. 
Um, number 15 and finally, we stay at FBC because all we talk about is Bible, Bible, Bible. <laughs> and then their entire family signed the note. That's a, that's a keeper right there for me, an encouraging one. I hope you're encouraged. I uh, didn't mean to be negative in any way with my introduction last week. Just we were talking about uh, leading into Matthew chapter 21. And there I encourage you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Matthew 21 because Jesus was uh, chucking people out of the temple. And I was uh, just preparing our minds for this concept of people leaving uh, the area of worship there, leaving church. And what an, uh, an incredible scene that was as our Lord goes in and kicks over some chairs and tables and, and you got bird feathers flapping and, and um, he clears out the temple. This is Matthew chapter 21, uh, verse 12. Uh, let's let our eyes, even as you get your notes positioned for note taking in Matthew 21, verse 12. Um, let's reread just a couple verses there, because if you can see on your, as you can see on your notes, um, we're going to take a second look here today. And here's why. And Jesus entered the temple and he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of, say it with me, prayer. But you make it a den of robbers. I found that last week to be a very convicting statement. Did you? And so with that on my mind, and then this week is the National Day of Prayer on Thursday. I hope you'll take time out to intercede on behalf of our nation. There will be a gathering, a small gathering. Of, I don't know how big it'll be. I shouldn't say that. A gathering at the courthouse. Um, and some of us will gather for informal prayer at noon on Thursday down in Charlestown. You're welcome to join us. But there's scene number one from last week, the, the two scenes that we picked up, this incredible manly moment where our Lord with great confidence just throws these guys out and, and just declares my house will not be dominated by robbers and thieves, but it will be known as a house of prayer. We then go into the next scene and remember that odd scenario where our Lord at the end of the day heads to Bethany, I assume to lodge where he often did when he was in this part of the country um, based on other texts in the home of Lazarus, Mary and Martha in Bethany. There he was refreshed in their guest room. And then the next morning, verse 18, when he comes back, we have this strange scenario where he goes up to this fig tree that is full of leaves but he doesn't find any figs. He's hungry. He wants some figs. It was a good assumption because we understand how fig trees bear fruit, that the fruit pops out ahead of the leaves. And so if you see leaves, you can assume that there are figs. Okay, and let's just read a minute. And he's returning in the city. He became hungry. He sees the fig. He condemns the fig. May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. And it's interesting, of all the things that the disciples have witnessed in their time, these three years with our Lord, because remember, we're only about three and a half, four days away from going to the cross now. He's, he's at the very conclusion right here now of his earthly three-year window of ministry. They've seen many, many spectacular things. And they stand there and it says they marveled in verse 20. And they're like, how in the world did that happen? And then Jesus gives this answer. Look at it. 
So truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. That's the other part that just drew me back to this passage. I know that on October 16th, I looked it up, October 16th, right here in the fall of 2016, in chapter 17 of Matthew, we had that parable of the mustard seed, where he says, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, that you could look at a mountain and you could, in faith, move it into the deepest part of the sea. And he gives a similar instruction there, that if you have faith and you ask, it will happen. Don't you long to have that kind of prayer life? But I have to say that I'm set back from the passage because I don't know that I can bear testimony that this is my experience. Can you? I mean, when you look at the passage, the words, they could hardly be clearer. If you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but you'll say to this mountain, be taken and thrown into the sea. It will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Now, I'm very concerned and convicted that we be a house of prayer. And I thought if we're going to be a house of prayer, we better understand what, what this kind of prayer life looks like. I mean, we hear the stories, don't we? Some of the great Christians of the past, the name that comes to mind first when it comes to mountain-moving kind of prayer life is George Mueller. You know that name, George Mueller? George Mueller was born in 1805. He died in 1898. He was a Christian missionary evangelist, and he was a coordinator of orphanages in Bristol, England. Through his faith and prayers... And without asking for money, he, he had a policy to not ask for money. He had the privilege of caring for over, listen to this, 120,000 orphans. He also traveled over 200,000 miles by ship to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ in 42 different countries and to challenge believers about world missions and trusting God. In his journals, Mueller recorded miracle after miracle of God's provision and answered prayer. Of this, these journal accounts, perhaps his most famous story, and you, I had to wonder if it was apocryphal, it is presented as true out of his journals, it goes like this. One morning, all the plates and cups and bowls on the table of our orphanage were empty. There was no food in the pantry and there was no money to buy food. The children were standing by waiting for their breakfast meal when Mueller said, Children, you know that we must be in time for school. And then lifting up his hands, he prayed, Dear Father, we thank thee for what thou art going to give us to eat. There's no food. Thank you, Lord, for our breakfast. There's no breakfast. Empty plates and cups on the table. There was immediately a knock on the door. The baker stood there and he said, Mr. Mueller, I couldn't sleep last night. Somehow I felt you didn't have bread for breakfast and the Lord wanted me to send you some. So I got up at 2 a.m. and baked some fresh bread and I have brought it. Mr. Mueller thanked the baker and no sooner had the baker left when there was a second knock at the door. It was the milkman and he announced that his milk cart had broken down right in front of the orphanage and he would like to give the children his cans of fresh milk so that he could empty his wagon and repair it. 
Kabam. Do you have any stories like that in your journal? What's the problem, people? You see, this is troubling, isn't it? And I thought that it was very important that if we are going to develop a spiritual culture of prayer, that Fellowship Bible Church become a house of prayer, and where God is at work, and He's working through the prayers of His people, we need to understand what's happening here. What's interesting about this incredible teaching is that it's not unique. This isn't the only place in Scripture that God says, if you had faith, you could look at the mountain and you could move it into the depths of the sea. I'm going to leave it up to you um, in the uh, opening part of the notes there to see that there are more Scriptures that speak to this point. It's Mark 11, it's Matthew 7, it's John 14, John 15, 1 John 3, 1 John 5. And they are profound statements that if you do this, this will happen. So how do we align our personal experience of prayer along with these great statements that our Lord has made? Well, I think it would be good for us to just react to this. This is part one of I don't know how long we'll go here, but I'm going to try to deal with some answers here. And we're only going to touch the beginning of the answer. Because I thought it was important for us to be honest with how this seems. Doesn't it seem to you that when we read this and you, and you recognize these words that our Lord is telling His disciples, that number one on our notes, the spectacular and miraculous are really just one prayer away. Doesn't it look that way? If you don't doubt and you have faith that spectacular, miraculous answers are really only one prayer away. Now let me say and remind you of what I said last week. I do believe that at some level there is an application here that is directly geared to the disciples. That is that we're only a few days away from the cross, as I've mentioned. The disciples are going to just have the props knocked completely out from underneath their faith with the death burial of our Lord. Then the resurrection is going to reignite things. They're going to have understanding. They're going to have a little bit more teaching time. Our Lord is going to ascend 40 days later, and these guys, in just a few weeks after that, are going to become the most powerful preachers and church planters the world has ever known. Remember that much of what our Lord taught was confusing to them up to the time of the cross, and it took the resurrection realities to straighten out their thinking on so many things. And I think our Lord is teaching them here that if you do this, you will have this kind of power in your ministry. And I would suggest that the book of Acts is the journal that records much of this kind of prayer power that the apostles and the disciples experienced in their apostolic era of ministry. So I think that's part of it. But that being said, I think this isn't written just to the disciples. It's written to his church today. What do we get from this? I get from it that we're just one prayer away from powerful things happening. Number two, I think when you read this, you have to say that it seems like that my lack of faith, number two, which is doubt, must be the only reason for unanswered prayer. Our Lord doesn't say anything else. All He says is, if you have faith, and if you would not doubt, then this will happen. And so I assume that my doubting and my lack of faith is the source of my ineffective prayer life. 
Number three, it seems to me when I read this as well, that there really should be no limits to answered prayer in my life. Think about it. I mean, look what he says. It will happen. No limits outside the boundaries. Number four, this seems to me to be an unqualified assurance by Christ of answered prayer. I think our Lord seems to be giving us this unqualified assurance that your prayer will be answered. Get rid of doubt, have faith, your prayer will be answered. He says, whatever you ask, whatever you ask, Lord, I'm tired of my soccer team losing. This Saturday morning, would you please give us a win? Whatever you ask. Number five, I can only conclude that if my prayers are not being answered, then I need more faith. When you read a passage like this, and it's, it takes you back. And, and I want us to be a house of prayer, and I want us to see answers to prayer, and I want to have this reality in my life. What do I do with these passages? Why are we not seeing more of this? It is, by the way, the, the seedbed and the foundational area of these verses and those that I listed in the introduction for you to look up later for the name it, claim it doctrines. I mean, look what he says. You can see where you arrive at that. Whatever you ask, that's name it. It will happen. That's claim it. Why not? It appears to me that that's what our Lord is teaching here. So let's back up a little bit and let's come at it again and let's ask ourselves maybe, what is Jesus not teaching in this passage? Let's try to bring some clarity as we lay a foundation for understanding how we are going to become a house of prayer that is effective in prayer through faith and removing doubt. Okay, so how do we do this? What is Jesus not teaching us here? First of all, I would like to suggest that Jesus is not teaching. And by the way, these three items were from a part of the sermon on October 16th in the fall of 16 here, where we were in chapter 17 on the mustard seed faith. I think that what Jesus is not teaching is that my faith and my prayers can move real mountains. Okay, so you read it. And you're thinking to yourself, you know, if I really had enough faith, I could look at South Mountain and I could make it into North Mountain. <laughs> or I could fill part of the Potomac with it to be consistent with the passage. But I think that, that when you look at the scope of our Lord's teaching, and he's taught a lot on prayer actually in Matthew. And when you look at the teaching throughout the scripture and the examples and models of prayer of saints of the past, and you look at the, epistle, the epistles and the apostolic teaching on prayer, I think that you have to conclude in the grand scope of looking at the doctrine of prayer in Scripture that what our Lord is teaching here is, is beginning with hyperbole. That is, He is using exaggeration to illustrate a point. He doesn't necessarily or really mean stone and rock and moss and tree stumps that if you could muster up the faith and you could get rid of the doubt that you could put it down into the sea, this mountain over here. All right. And I think it's hyperbole. It's it's used. And he often did this in his teaching as well. It is not unusual for our Lord to teach using figures of speech. 
But part of the evidence is that in Scripture, godly men and women of faith, they never did this. There's no evidence that they ever, is the word, there's no evidence that they ever did this. Now, they did some remarkable, miraculous things through faith in God, and God worked through them that impacted the physical world. But my point is, you never saw them just uh, messing around with nature. Now, now, God himself opened up the earth and swallowed people when they sinned in the camp, Israel of old. You have Moses being told by God to move the people to the sea. Raise up your staff. Here we go. He does, and the waters part, and God, somehow through Moses' obedience, I don't think Moses had any ability to part the sea, but he just obeyed what God did, and then God parted the sea. So you have the, the sea parting. In Joshua, when he was the general, and it was time for them to cross into, in the book of Joshua, when it was time to cross into the promised land, Moses is now off the scene, and God has removed him from leadership and, and taken him up into a mountain, buried his body. Joshua is the new general. The Jordan's at flood stage. How are we going to get across the river to go where you told us to go? And God tells Joshua, line them up. Let them just put their feet in the water and the water parts. Right, so you do see some impact on nature. But my point is you never have examples as far as I can tell, of this kind of thing where, you know, they took the Mount of Olives and they moved it over to the other side of Jerusalem. They just didn't do that stuff. There's no examples of the godly saints of the past doing this kind of thing. Secondly, I do not think that Jesus is teaching that my faith and my prayers are supposed to come together like some kind of powerful magic wand. And that's what you sometimes get when you look at this. You look at it, it's like, whoa, this is great. That guy that I don't like hanging around my daughter, twinkle your nose, get rid of doubt, have faith, shazam, get him out of here. God answers that prayer. That nice new shiny truck that I really, really want. Pray, believe, get rid of doubt, doubt bam, shazam. If you have that kind of mindset when you enter this passage, it's totally distorted. That's not, I don't think at all, what our Lord is teaching. You know, that, that somehow this is our wheel of fortune or something, or our, uh, our, our drawstring that's attached to the lever of heaven, and you can pull on it with, with getting rid of doubt and having enough faith, and open the, the shoots of heaven and downpour the blessings. It's, that's not, I don't think, what he's talking about here. Nor do I think he's teaching that a lack of faith is always the reason for unanswered prayer. You see, if you look at the passage and you come away from it, you think, man, clearly my prayer life is ineffective because of my doubting and my lack of faith. So it's kind of the same thing, isn't it? But I don't think that that's the only thing our Lord is teaching here or that that is the only, I don't think he means to say that that is the only reason prayers go unanswered. In fact, I think we can biblically prove that and the balance of our message will be doing that today. So what is Jesus teaching? And this is point number one of, on a lesson on prayer that we're going to have a few more points. We're only getting number one and part, part of number one today. 
So what is Jesus teaching? Well, we read the passage. He certainly has elevated the priority of prayer, hasn't he? He has kicked out the money changers. He has declared in no uncertain terms, my house shall be a house of prayer, a place of worship, a place of communion with God, a place where our priorities are straightened out from worldliness and worldly values. And prayer is the priority. And what he's saying, I think, is that doubt, that doubt and lack of faith is a huge cause for unanswered prayer. I think clearly that that's that's an emphasis. It's probably the greatest point that our Lord is challenging his disciples with. You do need to be concerned about your doubt and you do need to grow in your faith and you will see results in your prayer life. So this is a problem and we see this supported in scripture. Look at Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 for example. It's written in our notes and there it says and without what? Without faith it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must come to him believing that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Faith. Faith's the key word there. Believing. James 1, 6 and 7, he gives some instruction about not wavering like a wave of the sea, being double-minded and unstable. But no, you must ask in faith. With no doubting, ask in faith if you're going to see results. Clearly, our Lord is is elevating the need for faith, for us to grow our faith, to remove doubt. Thirdly, James chapter 5, third bullet point, James 5, 15, and the prayer of faith. There it is again. You could circle faith. Faith will save the one who is sick. Call the elders, anoint him with oil, lay on hands, and it's the prayer of faith that's going to heal him. What about that? Our Lord is definitely teaching them. And teaching His disciples and teaching His church that if we are going to see effectiveness in prayer and answered prayer, we must deal with doubt and we must elevate faith. So the next logical question is, well, how do we do that? I mean... We prayed for my brother who was 21 when he was dying of leukemia 32 years ago. We believe that God could heal him. You have your stories. I know that God could heal him. I know that God has the power to heal him. And as his body shriveled up and as we prayed and as we begged God and we prayed in Jesus' name and we would bow our heads and hold hands around the bed and we would pray and we thought, wouldn't it be wonderful and a great testimony to the name of Christ to see him put his body back together, reverse the cancer, restore his health and let him go back to college and grow up and live a normal life. And we bow to pray and his emaciated body's there and we're praying and we say we believe all that but in the back of my mind, what am I thinking? There ain't no way. There is no way that people with leukemia at this stage ever reverse. What is that? It's doubt, isn't it? So how do you overcome that? I mean, don't we at some level need to live realistically? You know, make stuff up. So how do we grow our faith and how do we remove doubt from our lives? You have to come back next week for that. Because I think at this point we also have to stop and we have to answer one other question that's related to this. Okay? Are there other aspects that I need to be aware of 
that destroy answers to prayer. If you flip your page, that's what I want to do for the conclusion of the message today. And I want us to, to wrestle with this just a little bit and to understand more about the problem of unanswered prayer. We are acknowledging our faith has to grow, our doubt has to diminish. But I want you to see that that's not the only reason that God doesn't answer prayer. Okay? And so here's seven biblical reasons. It's not exhaustive. There are more reasons. Here's seven biblical reasons. The first, go figure, is prayerlessness. Prayerlessness. Um, God doesn't answer prayers that are never prayed. Huh. I mean, we're busy, aren't we? We're busy people. Our lives are filled with all kinds of things, demands. Many things that take us out of a of mindset of faith and prayer into a mindset of discouragement. And we go from before sunup to after sundown. And then when it's time to relax, the TV's on and finally the kids are in bed and we're just chilling and we just want to vegetate and, and the days slip by and we have to be honest with ourselves, don't we? We really don't pray very much. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says to pray without ceasing. How in the world do you do that? Clearly, the Apostle Paul is instructing us that our lives are to be characterized continually by an attitude of prayer. Luke chapter 18 is the story of the, of the widow. You don't have to turn there, but what I would encourage you to do is put these notes in your Bible. And if you don't have a copy of the notes, get there's extra bulletins in the back, I'm sure, with notes in them. Or walk around the auditorium and pick one up off the floor and afterwards. And put it in your Bible, and then on your lunch break this week, do a little Bible study through this list of seven, and look up all the passages, because we're not going to look them all up today. But in Luke 18, you have a, a lesser to greater story. You have the widow who has needs in her life, and she goes to the judge, and the judge won't hear her. And she's determined, and she keeps coming back, and finally he, she wearies him. And he says, let her have her case Solve it. Take care of it. Get it off my docket. She's wearing me out. How much more? See, that judge is a picture of our Heavenly Father. How much more would our Heavenly Father respond if we would come to Him and keep coming to Him is the point. But you have to pray. You can't not pray and wonder why there's no answers to prayer in your life. Duh. That's the point there. Number two sinfulness, sinfulness, clearly Scripture teaches that when we do not deal appropriately and properly with sin in our lives, that it becomes a ceiling, a lid on our prayer lives. This is a problem. This is a huge problem. I've dealt with people whose lives are characterized by sinfulness and a lack of repentance, and they wonder why God doesn't hear their prayers. I've talked to people who are involved in all kinds of illicit sin and they wonder why their lives are so broken and messed up. And I pray all the time. So what's up? God doesn't hear your prayers. That's what's up. Psalm 66, 18 says, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have heard me or listened to me. Peter says the same thing. He says that he does, the prayer of the unrighteous is not heard. It's the prayer of the righteous that is heard. And he's quoting Psalm 34. Now there is a prayer that God hears from the unrighteous. It's a prayer of repentance. 
and you come to the cross at any time you want and you lay down your sin and he always has ears to hear a sinner's prayer of repentance. But I'm talking about problem solving prayer in your life and you're playing with sin and you're harboring sin and you've got little pockets in your inner man that are all protected in the top shelf in the back, the box on the top shelf in the back closet of the closet of your heart, in the house of your heart. And there's a box full of sin that you're saving for a rainy day. And we're, we're messing around and we're not dealing with sin in our life and we want to have an effective prayer life. It isn't going to happen. Number three, hypocrisy. We'll not camp on this. We spent significant time on it in Matthew chapter 6. If you want to, you could flip back and listen to it online. That's where the hypocrites get up and pray in public. And they, they make sure everybody knows that it's their turn to pray. And, and Jesus says that's their reward right there, being noticed by the public. It's no reward in heaven. There's nothing being heard up there. And we come to God in humility, right? Number four is selfishness. Selfishness. James chapter four, verse two, the end of it says, you do not have because you do not ask. Okay, that's prayerlessness. That's prayerlessness. James two, four, B, uh, four, two, B. James four, verse two, the second half, that's prayerlessness. You do not have because you do not ask. Verse 3, then he goes on and he says, And you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly. To spend it, to indulge it on your lusts and your passions. Ha, oh, I got this one. Hey, Lord, how about that new deer rifle I've been asking about? And the Holy Spirit says, You already got seven in your case. Well, so. I mean, that's a terrible illustration because it's always God's will to buy a new deer rifle. But my point is that <laughs> our hearts are really deceptive, aren't they? Our hearts, we have such a, a great ability to deceive our own selves and not tell ourselves the truth. And sometimes when we're praying, we're praying out of a motive that is selfish and we're really not surrendered to God's will, whatever that would be. And selfishness is a lid on answering prayer. How about callousness number five? Callousness, callousness, especially towards my spouse. This is an interesting passage, this first three, first Peter 3 passage. First Peter 3, 7 says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. What's interesting about this passage, he's already given instruction for wives to be quiet and stop talking to their husbands because they're not going to listen to them anyway. And you all know that, right? Got an amen out there, don't I? Yeah. And so um, then he turns to the husband and he says, I want you to dwell with your wife with understanding. I want you to have a knowledge about your wife. And what's interesting about it is nowhere else in Scripture does it ever say for the wife to understand the man. It tells the man to understand the woman. So we have our homework cut out for us, men. And our job is to decipher the mystique of our wives. That's how you look at it. And her job is not to figure you out. She can't figure you out. You don't even can't figure yourself out if you're a good man. That's why you want more deer rifles when you don't need them. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I get asked it regularly. But your job is to understand her. 
And here's part of the incentive. So that your prayers may not be hindered. Do you see that? Listen, that is a profound reality. And some of us had better pay attention to our marriage if we're going to pay attention to our prayer lives. And we have situations going on where there's deep-seated bitterness, there's anger, there's unforgiveness, there's bricks in the, in the barrier wall that's being built in our relationship, and we wonder why God doesn't answer our prayers. And so we have our homework, men, to spend time with our wives and, and to relate to her and to take her to Nutter's ice cream. That's what I'm going to do tonight out of obedience to the passage <laughs> so, that, so that I can be close to her and my prayers will be effective. You understand what I'm saying here? We need to take it to heart. Sixthly, lack of forgiveness. Lack of forgiveness. Matthew chapter 5 talks about bringing your sacrifices to the altar and worshiping. That's where you would pray and you would lift up prayer before the Lord. And he says, if you bring your sacrifices before the Lord and there's a lack of forgiveness going on between you and another person, then you can forget your prayers being heard. In fact, you need to get up and you need to go restore that relationship or your prayers will not be heard. There it is. Bitterness towards someone. Number seven is weakness. So these are all reasons why prayer might not be answered in my life. Prayerlessness, sinfulness, hypocrisy, selfishness, callousness, forgiveness. Number seven is weakness. This is an interesting one. This is the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, chapter 12, excuse me. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10, where he goes before the Lord. Do you remember that the Apostle Paul talked about the fact that he had a thorn in his flesh? A thorn in his flesh. We don't know what that is. We know that it was something he really, really wanted out of his life. It could be that it was people. Some Bible students believe that it was people who were always antagonistic, attacking him and undermining his ministry. And he called them a thorn in his flesh. We do know that it derived itself from Satan. He attributes the thorn in the flesh from Satan was given to him. Some people think that he had a physical malady, like maybe bad eyes. Because in one conclusion of his epistles, he, he writes, I noticed that I signed with my own hand in large letters. And some people think he couldn't see and he used a secretary to write. Um... Any number of things could have been broken with Paul because he got beat up all the time and stoned to death. and Well, almost to death and maybe to death and resurrected. I'm not 100% sure about that. Probably didn't quite die. But he was stoned and beaten and left for, for dead many times on city garbage trash heaps for preaching the gospel. And he goes to God one day and the idea of the passage is that three different times, three different times, I believe that God was going to take away the thorn. It's not just like three times I happened to pray about it on my way to Walmart. It was that three times I was going to, I, I was counting on God to remove doubt, to have faith, and to answer this prayer. And he says, God says, nope. In fact, let me, let me just read it because I'm going to distort it. In 2 Corinthians 12, he said, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. 
Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Wow. There's a reason for unanswered prayer right there. And God decides in His sovereign oversight of your life to look at you and say, you've been asking for 39 years for that to go away. And it's never going to go away. Because in your weakness, you will be driven to me. And that's right where I want you. So what do you take home on this message? Um, First of all, buckle your seatbelt for this profound thought. Pray. Pray. If we're going to be a house of prayer, we got to pray, right? And it's a little bit like doing push-ups. Nobody can do them for you. You can't ask somebody else in phys ed to do your push-ups for you. You've got to do them yourself. Nobody's going to... Now, people can pray for you, don't get me, but they can't pray for you in place of you. They can pray on behalf of you, but they cannot pray in your place. You are responsible to pray, and the only way you can pray is to pray. That's it. So somehow you've got to figure out how to quit making excuses and make it happen. I've learned that most of us are pretty good at doing what we want to do. So part of what we have to focus on is our want to to pray. Because if we want to to pray, then we will pray. Secondly, diagnose. Diagnose. Okay, so you have a little bit of homework. There's seven things in our list that we stopped as a subpoint under number one. Agreeing under number one that Jesus is teaching in the passage that we must remove doubt and we must increase faith. But we stopped in a parenthesis and we said, okay, what else are the reasons why we might not have answered prayer? We've listed them and you need to diagnose now your own systems. And you need to tell yourself the truth about yourself. And you need to deal with these things. There might be some more obvious reasons than a lack of faith for why your prayers are not being answered. Thirdly, then, grow. Grow. In the long run, you need to know that spiritual, spiritual maturity will, will increase the confidence of your faith. Baby Christians usually aren't prayer warriors. People who don't know the Bible usually don't pray that much. But people who understand and walk with God... They are people who pray. People who are growing in their faith, they are people who pray and grow in their knowledge of the will of God through the Word of God. We spend time with God. One little example of that that I encountered was out of the journal of Howard Taylor, the son of the famous missionary of old to China, Hudson Taylor. And Howard Taylor journaled about his father, who spent his life spreading the gospel in China. He said, The sun never rose on China that God didn't find him on his knees. The sun never rose on China that God didn't find my dad on his knees. Listen, baby Christians don't get out of bed in the morning and pray. So one of the reasons some of us aren't praying very much is because we just really don't understand the Christian life. And we're not growing, we're not maturing And so one of the things we need to do is we need to set our face on a course of discipleship and growth 
and maturation. And along with that, we will see an enhanced prayer life. I assure you. Well, will you stand with me? That's our message for today. We're going to stop right there. And we're going to try, by God's grace, to pick it up with effectiveness next week. And try to continue to answer the question then. How is it then that I grow in faith and I diminish doubt? Let's bow our heads, shall we? Trust you have a relationship with Christ. I'm happy to talk to you about your spiritual condition today. I will linger down front here. I'll ask Sean Patrick to go to his table in the foyer. You be sure and greet our dear brother. and Tell him how thankful we are for him. But if you don't know Christ as your Savior today, that's another reason that your prayer life is ineffective. You're not born again. You're not a child of God. You don't have a relationship or a right to have answered prayer in your life. Come to the cross, confess your sin, admit your sinfulness, and receive the finished work of Christ on your behalf by faith for your salvation. I encourage you to do that in your heart right now. Father, you know our hearts and our minds. You know that we probably would be fairly embarrassed this morning to go through the ranks and give testimony of prayer that you've answered in our lives. And we long to see you answer prayer at, a, at a, even a more effective level. Yes, you've been faithful. Yes, you are faithful. And you answer prayers every day in ways that we don't even recognize. But, Father, some of the big things to us that we've been praying about, the people whose lives need transformed, relationships restored, problems solved, and it seems that you're silent, would you please help us To not grow weary in well-doing, please help us to be faithful in praying. And now as a church, Father, would you transform us into a house of prayer and show us how to do that. We commit ourselves to you for another week, Lord. It's a wicked world. The demands will be great this week. The temptations will be real. So guard and protect us, I pray. Guard our children today. Guard our homes. And as we go, we go asking for your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen.